Let's pray. God, you are good and gracious and uh, always loving, and we can't thank you enough for that. Help us uh, during this time to just be aware of your presence, of your love, of your compassion and kindness uh, for all of us. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning again, in case you weren't here or if you just logged on. That's what all the youths say these days. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that uh, we all get to be together, whether in person or through the internet. It's just, it's a fun, interesting, exciting time, and I'm glad that you are here along for the ride with us. We are starting today a brand new series, and to, to usher us into that, I would like to share with, my, with you my favorite story pretty much ever, The Giving Tree. I'm not going to read it right now because I don't want to cry in public, but this story is one of the ones that always gets to me, always uh, brings my emotions to bear, and is always such a good, tells such a powerful truth, even though it's a made-up story. And any kids or students who are joining us, the, the tree is your parents, and they give everything they have until they die, so be nice to them. That's pretty much the moral of it, I think. But that's my favorite, and I, I remember my mom reading it to me when I was a kid and not really getting anything. I was like, sweet, got a big old tree with lots of apples and branches. That kid has it made. But as an adult, it has a very different ring to it. <laughs> I want to ask you the same question, though. What is your favorite short story? And I'm going to put short in quotes because short story can encompass a lot of different lengths. But what's your favorite short story that maybe teaches a lesson of some kind. Maybe it um, is a fairy tale or a fable or some kind of short story that illustrates some kind of point. Anybody have an answer they'd want to share with the class? Yeah, go ahead. All the places you'll go. That's such a good one. Yeah. Norma? Zacchaeus, that's a good one. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's the other one that mm, tears always. Anyway, I want you to continue thinking about that because that is the kind of story that we're going to be diving into today. I'm going to sit down so I don't get too much out of the view of the camera, and I'm going to try to sit still, which is a challenge for me, but I'll do my best if you bear with me. We're talking about parables. Today is the first in a series called Cool Story Bro, because we're young and hip. And we're looking at some of the parables that Jesus tells, because they are very similar to this book. They're very similar to those stories, Love You Forever. They, even though they're made up, they can teach such a profound, important truth about the human condition. And for Jesus, he teaches in these parables a lot. He teaches uh, a, a about his kingdom through them. If, if you think about society in America, the, the basic structure is a hierarchy, right? You got like the boss or maybe the president or somebody at the top, and then you got the lower down, the executives, then middle management, then the employees, you know, and that's a generalization. So there are cases where that doesn't apply, but for most of society, that's kind of how things function. 
there's a hierarchy, there's a boss, there's people at the top and people at the bottom. But in Jesus's kingdom, he shares through these parables, it's flipping that whole thing on its head. He says over and over again, the last shall be first. It's not about getting to the most prestigious place. It's about becoming the best servant of others that we can. That's what his kingdom is all about. And he's illustrating that in these parables. And the one we're looking at today is a lot like the giving tree. It's about generosity. It's about giving. And I think that this story that we're going to deal with today gets to something that we all may feel attention about. Who would say that our society, by and large, operates on principles of fairness, justice, that kind of thing? Like, yes, no, maybe so, what do you guys think? Kind of, sort of? I think many of us would say that at least we, we aim to be fair, to be just, Anybody with kids knows that that is ingrained in your kids somehow, that fairness is supposed to be the top priority for everybody because you always hear, it's not fair that they got the new toy. I want a new toy, usually. But I think God's kingdom, Jesus's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, does not work in the same way that society tries to work. It's not necessarily a fair kingdom, and I don't think it's in the way, I don't think it's unfair in the way that many Americans might think of it. And the point where the, the story we're looking at today illustrates that unfairness in a really powerful way, I think. Before we dive into that, though, let's talk about what a parable is. A parable, a lot like the giving tree or the stories that we were talking about earlier, make some kind of spiritual truth known using everyday simple examples. A lot of the time, Jesus was like in a farming community, so like a lot of the time it is farming-related stories, farming-related illustrations. But parables do a couple of things. They, they invite us to look deeper below the surface of what Jesus is actually saying, like on, on the surface, he might just be telling a story about farmers and seeds. But if you scratch just below the surface, he's telling something that's profoundly true and important. And it also shows us about his kingdom, shows us about his upside down sort of structure, the servant centric nature of that kingdom. And it does it in a way that is easy to understand because it's something that we can relate to, something that we can see and understand rather than just some abstract concept. So the parable we're looking at today is going to be in Matthew 20. If you've got your Bibles, flip over there. If you don't, we'll have it on the, on the screens or if you have your phone and want to pull out your Bible app. If your Bible's glowing, I'll only judge you like a little bit on the inside. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. We're going to be in Matthew 20, but before we get there, we're going to look at the surrounding stuff. So let's rewind just a chapter. And right before Jesus tells this story, he has an interaction with a rich guy, with a rich young ruler, as your, your heading in your Bible may tell you. And this rich ruler says to Jesus, hey, I want to have eternal life. I want to live life with God. I want to be 
present with him and I want to have the best kind of life that he has to offer. How do I do it? And Jesus says, obey all of his commands. So he says that he's like the Old Testament law is very well known in the day. He says to obey those commands and there you go. Love God, love others. There, and there it is. This is uh, Matthew 19, and I'm going to read a couple verses starting in verse 20. I've obeyed all these commands, the young man replied. What else must I do? Like, check, got that. What's next, Jesus? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away, for he had many possessions. That's kind of a tough story for us to read about somebody who may remind us of ourselves at some points. This guy had a lot of stuff, and he was carrying that, the importance of that stuff with him to such a degree that even as he's pursuing the best, most God-centered life, he can't let go of those possessions, and he walks away sad. That's hard for some of us to hear. His disciples, though, say to Jesus, like, we did that. Sweet. What are, we, we got that, Jesus. We checked both of those boxes. What do we get for it? And Jesus is like, okay, so you're going to get something, sure. Like, I mean, hanging out with Jesus kind of seems like a something to me. You're going to get something for it. Don't worry. And this is, but he says it's going to be different than we expect. This is verse 30, the last verse of the story. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then in his kingdom. And those who seem least important now will be greatest then. He's telling his disciples, yeah, you've, you've got some status. You are one of my original 12. You are one of the closest followers to me. And yeah, there'll be rewards in heaven, sure. But it's not gonna operate the same way you think it does. It's this upside down kingdom that he's been ta talking about the whole time. Then he tells this parable. And then if we fast forward uh, after the parable, there's a story about some of his followers that I think is just funny to me. It's hilarious the way this plays out. So we're going to read like the whole thing, but it'll just take a couple of, a few verses. This is Matthew 20, and I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of Jesus's like close followers, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. This is the uh, 2,000 years ago equivalent of your mom calling your teacher to ask for an extension on your paper because you're too scared to ask yourself. That's what's happening here. I think it's hilarious. Like, Jesus, my sons wanted me to ask you if they can have a special seat in heaven. Verse 22, but Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the 10 other disciples heard that James and John had asked, they were indignant. Like, why are they asking for this favor? But not, what? 
But Jesus called them together and said, you know the rulers of this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. That hierarchy, that's how society works. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is sandwiching this parable in between two interactions, real-life interactions, where the point is the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Do you see some kind of trend here, some kind of theme that may be emerging? This upside-down kingdom that Jesus is about to speak of doesn't operate the same way American hierarchy society works, or even 2,000 years ago, Jewish society worked. So with all that out of the way, let's read the story, and we'll take a couple of breaks to, to have some fun conversation. Have you ever heard somebody say, let's have a fun conversation, and then had a fun conversation? Don't worry, you won't have to do much work. Matthew 20, I'm going to start in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock, nope, pause, my bad. That was my fault. Pause there. First, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. It's not just a story about a farmer, about workers. He's illustrating this kingdom that is going to be different from society. He's saying this story is about to illustrate the actions, the attitudes, the lifestyle of my followers. The followers of Jesus are going to embody this story in their communities, in their relationships, in their lives. This is what it's going to be like. And the landowner is out in the market. It's harvest time, so they need like extra workers. I grew up in a city, very happy to not really know anything about harvesting or farming or vegetables, plants, whatever. But these people knew it. These people knew the agrarian society like the back of their hand. So they know it's harvest time. You need extra workers for, I guess, harvesting. I don't know what else goes into that. But yeah, harvesting needs harvesters, right? I think I said that right. So this landowner, this guy, is out there looking for extra hands to help. And this is still something that happens today. These are what we would call day laborers, and it still happens. This picture is from uh, New Mexico, I think, and people will congregate, will gather in a, in a place that is known to provide some kind of conduit to hire these laborers. Like, those guys will sit out there and wait until someone drives by and like, hey, I need a couple of guys to help with this house project that I got. A couple of guys get in the truck and off they go. That's what's happening here. People are waiting in the marketplace, waiting in a place that others know is central to that kind of transaction, right? Like people know if you, it's not like the government said, hey, this is the day laborer block, but people know I'm going to gather here. I'm going to go there if I want to hire them. That's just what happens. That's what these people are doing. They're day laborers. And the deal that this landowner strikes is, I will pay the normal daily wage. Your Bible, if you're using a different translation, may say denarius, which is a fun, exciting word. Do we all want to say it together? Denarius? Way to go, guys. 
So this is a picture of one from about the same time that Jesus was speaking here. You can see that coins back then weren't as even and uniform as they are today. And a lot of people might say a denarius was so many grams of silver, silver, so today it would be worth such and such. But really, it's more of a societal, cultural thing. Like, yeah, there's probably some equivalent. You could figure out that amount of silver equals, I don't know, 250 or something like that today. I don't know what the going rate of silver is. But it's really just a regular day's wage. That's what a denarius is. So if we were using the average U.S. wage today, that would be $24.40. For an eight-hour workday, you would get $195.20. So about that. If we went towards like minimum wage, that's $9.45 in Missouri, uh, it would be $75.60 for eight hours of work. So when you hear the word denarius or daily wage as we read this story or in the Bible, think maybe about a hundred bucks, right? Like that's a pretty fair cultural matchup to consider. You don't have to worry about the math. You don't have to worry about anything. It had about the buying power that a hundred dollars has today. So these guys, these uh, day laborers are not raking in the dough and able to invest and able to save. They are pretty much living day by day, not just paycheck to paycheck like a lot of people in America do, but they are literally working today so that they can eat tomorrow. That's the kind of situation they're in. And so they are in the market trying to earn some kind of work, trying to earn some kind of wage. That's the position they're in. There's not a lot of margin. There's not a lot of extra income to spend on cell phones, computer games, 401ks. I don't know what people buy these days. There's not a lot of leftover. These are, people are hand-to-mouth, as the saying goes. And so he agrees to pay them, and they go to work. Let's pick back up in verse 3. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever is right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. So this guy is always on the lookout for more workers, more harvesters, because, like I said, it's harvest time, and we all know that harvest time needs harvesters. And this guy is looking for more all throughout the day. Every couple of hours, he's back out in the market, sees more people, and he's like, hey, you, go ahead and work. But this time, he doesn't say, I'm going to pay you X dollars. He just says, I'll pay you whatever is right. And if you are at noon in the market trying to get hired still, you're thinking, okay, so it's been about half the day, so I'll probably get the prorated amount. I'll get 50 bucks maybe, whatever the equivalent is. He doesn't really specify, they don't really specify, just like, hey, I'll, I'll pay you for your time, go work in the field. Better than nothing, right? Verse 6, at 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. He doesn't even tell these guys he's going to pay them. He just says, like, hey, you want something to do? Kill some time? It's 5 o'clock, got like an hour left in the workday. I guess I'll go hang out. 
I mean, they probably assume they're going to make something, but it's pennies compared to what they were hoping to. So put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They are still in the marketplace after hours and hours, after all day waiting and hoping that someone is going to pay them so that they can eat tomorrow, so that they can have food to give to their family tomorrow, so that they can have money to give to the landlord the next day. These people, these guys, are now wondering more and more and more, what am I going to do? If I don't get work today, like, my kid's hungry, my daughter needs diapers, I guess, whatever they did back then. These people are in a bad way, and they've been hoping and praying all day long for somebody to come and give them something, because an hour's worth of work, hour's wage, is better than no wage, right? So they're hoping, and this guy comes through, and he says, hey, you go work in the field. Then in verse 8, this is the fun part. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. So this is like a, a common thing back in the day, that you would pay somebody at the end of the day, not like a two-week pay cycle or a one-week pay cycle. Like you were paid that day for that day's work. And it actually goes back to Leviticus. In the Old Testament law, there was this, do not defraud or rob your neighbor, agreed, Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. In that culture, it was known. People are depending on being paid now. I can't afford to wait tomorrow. I can't afford to wait two days. I can't afford to wait a week. I need money. I need bread tonight, today. I need something for right now. And this guy was was doing that. But he lines them up. Last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I think that's important. Imagine that you are at the back of the line because you were one of the first hired, right? Sort of put yourself there as this is unfolding. Uh, Verse 9, when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. That is a surprise, and that's awesome. Like, I worked an hour, got 100 bucks. Sweet. When those hired first came to get their pay, they've worked their way all the way through the line, And they've seen full day's wage, full day's wage, full day's wage, full day's wage for these people who had worked half, maybe even less of what they had worked. They assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. Ah, bummer. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat? See how unfair this is? He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? Jesus breaks out of the story here. So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last whole thing illustrates this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is instituting. He's bringing to bear on this earth a kingdom that doesn't operate the same way as the rest of society, that doesn't operate the same way as humans think it ought to. 
And this parable is so good because it teaches us a lot of things. Just like all the parables, it's about God's kingdom and it's about his grace. It teaches us a couple of things about his grace. First, it teaches us God's grace is always available. He, he doesn't like cut off, okay, it's 4.30. That's the wrong hand. 4.30, you almost missed the cutoff. You missed the cutoff, guys. Sorry, it's five o'clock. I'm not hiring anybody any, anymore. He was all day going out to the marketplace, looking, searching, hunting down people who he could give generously to. If you haven't picked up on it yet, the landowner illustrates God in the story. So God's grace and generosity. Yeah, you, you, you got it, I know. The other thing it teaches us is that God's grace is given generously. He doesn't withhold it. He doesn't give a half amount of grace to the people who worked half of the day. He doesn't give one-tenth of the work to the grace for somebody who came in at the tail end. No, he gives everybody the full amount of grace. There's no expiration date. There's no limit. God's grace is generous, is available to everyone. And it also teaches us about our priorities. And this is where maybe it, it gets a little tough for us to introspect. Shows us that we can be focused on fairness. We can be focused on just like the first hired people. This isn't fair. They didn't work nearly as much. They didn't work as hard. They sure didn't sweat as much. Why should they get the same amount as me? We can be focused on fairness. We can see God's generosity in the lives of others, maybe in the lives of people that we think are less than deserving. We can see his generosity, grace, and love shared with those who are different from us. And we can get in an uproar and we can say, they don't deserve their grace. Do you know how many bad things they've done? Do you know what they are doing still today? It's not fair. They don't really mean it. And some of us who have been at this whole Jesus following thing longer than others may have that to deal with a lot heavier. Jesus says that we can be focused on fairness. We can cry out just like the kids in the backseat of the car when they don't get the right toy from McDonald's. We can cry out how unfair things are or we can be like the landowner. We can be geared toward generosity. We can make that our priority. We can realize that God has given his grace, his generosity, his love towards us, and we can see that in other people and celebrate it. We can see the amazing amount of grace that God has given to those who are so in need of it and be overjoyed. We can point it out. We can bring it to the attention of other people. We can share that with those around us. We can either be focused on the fairness of the equation or we can be excited and energized and, and generous about God's grace as well. So the landowner represents God and he gives his grace, his love, his mercy, kindness, compassion, so many things freely and generously to anybody. And he invites us to share the same thing. To, there's this movie from like the late 90s, I guess, Pay It Forward, which just makes me aware of how old I am. 
we can take God's grace that he's given us, his love and generosity, and pay it forward, share it with those around us. Share it with those who don't know about it and who need to hear it so, so badly. He invites us into that same work. And it's up to us. We can either be excited about it, we can be generous with God's grace, or we can be all wrapped up in fairness. But that doesn't change the truth, because the bottom line is that God's grace is unfair, and he gives it to anybody. He was constantly seeking, who else can I find? Who else can I hire? Who else can come work for me and get this grace, this generosity? I want to give this gift. Who's ready to take it? So what are the priorities in your life that may conflict with that? What are the things that you see happening, the good things, the gracious things, the generous things that God has done in other people's lives that maybe makes you a little jealous, maybe a little indignant? Where are the places that, that this story is pointing out things in your own heart? Who are the people that may be difficult for you to share that generosity with? Who are the people or the types of people that maybe are difficult and challenging for you to show that same generosity to? And, and why, why might that be? So your homework this week, and I do this with all my students, and if you're at home watching online, it's, I guess, just work. Your homework this week is a couple of things. First, embrace, enjoy, celebrate God's grace and generosity that he's shared with you, but also with other people. Be excited for the love and the generosity that they've gotten, no matter what they have or haven't done to earn it. And number two, show God's generosity to one other person this week. Bonus Jesus points if you show that generosity to one of the people that it's hard for you to be generous with. But those are your two things. Be excited, celebrate that generosity and his grace, and share it with others. Share it with one other person. Uh, Brandy Swafford has recorded a, a video, a communion preparation for us, and, and we're going to play that in a minute to sort of set our hearts, our minds, get our thoughts kind of in, in the right mode, in the, in the gear to celebrate God's generosity, his love and the, the grace that he's given to us. But first, I'm going to pray. God, thank you for everything, for your generosity, for your love, for, Father, all the ways that you continue to work in our hearts, in our lives. Help us to see your grace, your generosity, the things that you have given us, and to be excited about that, but help us not to be selfish with it. Help us not to be jealous of the grace or generosity, or things that others have received from you as well. God, just help us to celebrate the, the true love and grace that you showed us to Jesus, through Jesus on the cross. Uh, be with us as we remember. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.